ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Chicago Podcast Network current ongoing series where we review and go through the Star Wars movies getting ready for our big event December 17th at the Pickwick Theater uh, where we will be doing giveaways and all sorts of fun activities like that. And if that music that you're hearing gets stuck in your head, you know, it was AJ's idea, so that's the best I can tell you. The uh, We did episode one not too long ago, and uh, now we're kind of getting into, I guess we're going to go to episode two, then episode three. Obviously, that's the way we're doing it. I don't know why I made it seem like it was some big mystery or anything like that. But here we are, ladies and gentlemen. And as we get ready for our big event and we review these movies, we can start this off with the simplest ways of saying I am joined over the interwebs and Skype by my good buddy AJ Signary. AJ, say hi to the wonderful Star Wars people. Hey, wonderful Star Wars people. They are but our young Padawan learners who are going to learn the great secret, AJ, today. And that is that I tried to warn everybody that Episode 2 is the worst Star Wars movie ever made. No, it's not. You think episode one is the first one. No, man, this one is worse. Episode one at least has some actors in it. This movie does not. How about we do this? How about we do an actual like screenwriting conversation because the first one and the second one was poorly written. Yes. That, that is a way of saying it. They were poorly written. This movie includes two C-3PO puns within 10 seconds of each other. Two. I feel... Besi- what is it? It's as uh, I've gone to pieces as he's lying in pieces, and I feel as though I'm lying beside myself as right. his head is next to his body. Uh, I hate puns. I hate them so much, AJ. Like, Puns are fine if you make them witty, but I mean, if you're making a pun for the make of making a pun, then it's not punny at all. Right. Nothing about this movie is 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 redeemable, in my opinion. Nothing. There's nothing good in this movie. Actually, that's not true. There is one good scene in this movie. One. You know what it is? Well, which one's yours? Would you like to sell me death sticks? You don't want to sell me death sticks. I don't want to sell you death sticks. You want to go home and rethink your life. I want to go home and rethink my life. That is the only time in this movie that I am engaged in a scene. Other than that, I will tell you that the first 20 minutes this movie was on last night, every time Hayden Christensen delivered a line, I couldn't look at the screen. So let's talk about that for one second. Um, And someone mentioned this in a review before. And we kind of talked about it regarding episode one. When you're doing a movie, you know, are you, do you do a movie that you write a good project and you hope the actors follow through with that? Or do you have the actors drive the writing? In other words, like I said, this was a poor, another poorly written film by George Lucas. And Hayden Christensen, you know... He's not, like, the greatest actor. You know, I mean, we're talking about the guy from Goosebumps TV show, right? And Jumper. Um, don't, don't forget the movie Jumper. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that, too. Um, But he was just bad in this movie, you know? And it's like, I mean, is it his fault or is it the writing's fault? I mean, 
which one's first, chicken or the egg? And I have to go on the side of the writing on this one again because, I mean, you know, an actor's job is to, you know, make sure they deliver what the script is, but also the actor also has that creative license to make it their own as well. I, I understand what you're saying. I really do. And... I, I had the same conversation with the people I watched the movie with last night. Is it? Are we being unfair to Hayden Christensen? Is the character so poorly written that really there was nothing that he could do? Was George Lucas directing him to have the reactions that he had, which were in many cases the wrong emotional reaction to what is happening in a scene? I think that's part of it. But at that point, it's incumbent on the actor to save the part. In any way that he can, and I don't think Hayden Christensen had the skill to do it. No, I mean you look at all the things he's done before, and he really, up to that point, never grew as an actor at all. Yeah. I mean, his delivery, his delivery is flat most of the time. Um, and then when he emotes, it's over the top. Right, you know, and you just don't see depth. With him as an actor, I feel up to up up to that point. I'm saying. Well, you, the the thing with me with this movie in particular is as you're watching it, and he's first of all, this whole movie is predicated on two storylines, and I, I guess I should do a plot recap really quick, just to for those of you who haven't seen episode two in a long time, remind you of what happens. Uh, Queen Amidala. First of all, let's go through the uh, my favorite. <laughs> Uh, thing to do with these prequel movies. Let's let's go into the the uh, crawl here and 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 have a little bit of fun with that because that that's here we go. This is what the movie starts with. There is unrest in the Galactic Senate. Several, several thousand solar systems have declared their intentions to leave the Republic. This separatist movement, under the leadership of the mysterious Count Dooku, made it, has made it difficult for the limited number of Jedi Knights to maintain peace and order in the galaxy. Senator Amidala, the former Queen of Naboo, is returning to the Galactic Senate to vote on the critical issue of creating an army of the Republic to assist the overwhelmed Jedi. Two movies in a row both dealing with civics class issues. And so her ship lands, there's an explosion, an assassination attempt, they get, uh, the emperor, not emperor, tells her that she needs protection, so of course they send the 17-year-old Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi to protect her, investigate what's going on. They, they basically track down the assassin, and at which point the stories diverge. Hayden Christensen and uh, Natalie Portman's characters go off to Naboo to hide. Obi-Wan goes to investigate where everything's coming from. In the process of his investigations, he meets Jango Fett, who is being cloned into super soldiers uh, to make an army that no one knew was being built, which I want to get into a little bit later. And then he leaves there to go to to follow Jango Fett ends up on the evil army's base planet meanwhile Anakin and the queen go to Tatooine because he's having nightmares about his mommy so he goes and he finds that his mommy is kidnapped by the Tusken Raiders it's kind of implied that she's been raped for a month he finds her cuts her down from like a 
thing that she's tied to, and then she dies, and he massacres an entire village of Tusken Raiders, and then gets really emo about it, and she doesn't immediately leave him, despite the fact that he admits to killing women and children, and then they go to Genosius to save Obi-Wan, then there's like a Roman gladiator scene that makes no sense, oh, I forgot about the very important and necessary factory scene, AJ, that takes place for 25 minutes in the middle of this movie, because you needed that scene. It was really important to the plot for 20 minutes for them to go through a factory floor. Then there's the, the gladiator scene, and then right as they're about to get killed, uh, you get finally Samuel Jackson is standing out of a chair, and he does, he has one awesome line where he says, party's over, and then the CGI takes over for about another 35 minutes. Then the Yoda shows up to fight, Christopher Lee, who's Saruman in The Lord of the Rings and Dracula, and then he turns into a little psychotic softball with a lightsaber. They fight. Movie over. Oh, yeah, and then Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman get married in the most forced love story in the history of love stories. That is the plot, ladies and gentlemen, roughly, of Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. It is a bad movie. AJ... Did you at any point believe that these two characters could possibly fall in love? No, because it was a poorly written film. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, no, I just didn't believe it at all. Um, I think that whole storyline, in my view, was kind of rushed. Um, it didn't add... Um, an artistic quality to it. I think that another aspect of it, of um, building up to that moment of falling in love and stuff like that, um, it was just kind of, you know, we were just supposed to assume that they were going to fall in love and all that good stuff. I feel like George Lucas has a child's understanding of romantic relationships. Like, that's the only... It, it is written like the way a six-year-old would write about a girl at school. Like, right. the lines that he delivers, the way that she uh, talks to him, the, the the scenes between them, like, she is clearly... First, first of all, her first line to him, other than it's so nice to see you, is, you'll always be that little boy I met on Tatooine. By the end of the movie, they're having sex. That's a weird thing for a woman to do. Like, there's a, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff in this movie where you're like, okay, she's a pedophile. He's kind of a rapist. He's got that creepy, rapey vibe going most of the movie. And every scene they have together, it's like they have no chemistry. Like, I've never seen two people on screen who are supposed Maybe Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney in... Uh, Whatever, uh, Out of Time, or whatever that movie was that came out in the 90s. But there's just no chemistry there. Like, you just, Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman, you get the idea that Natalie Portman spent the entire time she was on set going, I, I can't, how am I supposed to act with this dude? She is a black hole of emotion. People are delivering lines to him in a very believable way, and then they go, the camera cuts to Hayden Christensen, and it's, I love you. Yes. Like, he's a robot throughout most of this movie. It's very frustrating. Oh, very much so. When, you're, when you were watching this, did you notice that 
in the scenes that he's in where he's supposed to be, I, I, I guess, like, you're, you're supposed to get the idea that he's a troubled youth, that really all you got was that he was whining the entire movie. Did you feel that? I didn't get that. Because, um, again, I, I, I was still, from the first, from episode one to now, from this episode... I'm I'm still looking at the evolution of Darth Vader with Anakin and stuff like that. I was more interested in that evolution than anything else, um, because uh, with with this whole Star Wars, the, these episodes leading up to the original trilogy, um, I was more concerned about how. Anakin was going to be who we all know and love, as well as um, how everything else is going to be pieced together. Um, by George Lucas not really using green and blue screen when it comes to the acting, as well as other distractions, um, because of the writing, because of how the actors were trying to portray certain characters as well as, as I just mentioned, um, how George Lucas was directing how to use the green and blue screens for certain scenes of the movie. And you're right, and they become very distracting in the backgrounds to the point where there, there are scenes where you're like, okay, I'm clearly just watching what's going on in the background and not seeing these important scenes. Uh, the best example to that, uh, to me, all right, so... We'll get to there in a second. The movie starts off, they, they land on the planet, and the, her ship blows up. And then we get, you know, the, the, this whole force thing where he goes to meet, Anakin goes to meet her for the first time in years. He's clearly in love with her from the minute they get on the elevator. They haven't even seen her yet. And Obi-Wan Kenobi is just like, yeah, this is cool. The, all that stuff that we teach you, you can just ignore that. And we're just going to keep, you know, doing stuff. And then they have this scene where he's just like blatantly hitting on her in front of a room full of people, but apparently none of them are picking up on that vibe, and everything's fine. And then they have all this like intrigue that goes on. There's the that that car chase scene that goes on for half an hour. AJ, it's half an hour long, and they they it, it's. I've never seen an action sequence where people in the room I was with were bored, and people were the people I were watching it with were bored by the end of that car chase. And that's just an overuse of special effects. It felt so fake that you never felt that there were any real stakes in the in the chase itself. Right. No. Uh, yeah. Um, you know when. When you saw the um, car chase in the original trilogy, that was more lifelike you than this episode. You talking about the speeder bike in yeah. uh, in Jedi? Yeah. In comparison between those two, plus not to mention, you felt that your characters were in danger in Return of the Jedi. But don't you think that speaks more more to the technology? That happened during the 70s with Star Wars versus this episode of Star Wars. Yes, 
But the problem with that is, if you think about it, there is something to be said for tactile contact with stuff. Right. right? And when you watch that scene, look, you go back and watch Return of the Jedi, it's clearly being done in front of a moving screen, right? Like, there's, there's no hiding that fact. But it's done well enough, and you care about the characters at that point, that you're watching Luke and Leia. You're not watching the backgrounds. When you're in this scene, you're just watching all of the stuff. And then there's the little jokes that are thrown in, like, oh, there's just some standard traffic jokes. And, by the way, for no reason whatsoever, there's Sepulba from the first movie who's just in a car in this scene. And the technology, I understand what you're saying, well, the technology of the 70s should not be as good as this, but it's more believable than this. And the fakeness of that scene just bothers the hell out of me. Which oh, I'm, not, I'm not putting down the '70s technology. I'm I'm actually more um, in favor of what happened in the '70s because for the graphics that came to be then seemed more lifelike than any other movie that I can think of in the '70s when it comes to sci-fi and fantasy films than anything else. You know, I much rather have that be in Episode Two than the advanced technology and animation that came to be during that time because I think it did more of a disservice in episode two than what the original trilogy used to have. Right, and and I would even take it further to say that the CGI overuse in this movie uh, is more hurt, it, it hurts the film more than it helps it. And I think there's no better example of that. Do you remember the scene where Obi-Wan goes to the diner to like get information about a dart from a friend of his. Yep. yep. Okay. That character is completely CGI. Right. Here's my question: What is gained by having that character be CGI? You know what I mean? Like, there's no. Right. I guess. Let me let's use this in comparison. So, when you look at a film like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, okay. Okay. Love that movie. Um. You actually have real people talking to cartoons, right? Right. You actually can see interaction. You believe that you're someone's actually talking to Roger Rabbit or talking to Jessica Rabbit or Mickey Mouse or Bob or whatever. Same way in Cool World, you know, you see. Ooh, hold on, um, that's a reference I've not heard in some time. Let's just take a second and, <laughs> and, and appreciate the fact that we have referenced the movie Cool World. All right, continue. I love Crew World because you had Brad Pitt talking to a cartoon and you really believe, you know, like this happened and everything. Um, George Lucas did not direct effectively that when Sam Jackson comes off a ship and you kind of see Sam Jackson looking at a CGI character, but you, he also can tell he's looking past that because, you know, he's talking to a ball in blue screen. Right. You know? Um, there was nothing like that. So if you compare like Who Framed Roger's Rabbit and Episode Two, you can see a big difference when it comes to dialogue between CGI characters and real life characters. Well, real actors, I should say. I see what you're saying. So like in Roger Rabbit, you believe that they're talking to them, whereas in this movie, it's clear that they're just in an empty room. And no one's giving them anything back, so their performances suffer. That's what you're right. saying. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I, the again, going back to that scene in the diner, that character could have just as easily been a guy. 
And it wouldn't have changed anything in that scene. The only thing you gain by doing it is to prove that you can do it CGI, which is a really bad reason to do it. And as the movie plays forward, that happens a lot. They do the investigation right at this point. I I really don't want to talk very much about the love story between Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen. I just don't want to get into that because it's so bad that... There's not a lot to talk about, except that it's bad. And every scene they have together when they're alone, it feels like Natalie Portman is going, all right, here you go. I'm giving you my heart on a tray. I am acting like I am in love with you, Hayden Christensen. And Hayden Christensen returns it with, yes, love, that thing that humans feel. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's so bad. But the other side of it is, the interesting part of the movie is undersold so much because George Lucas is trying to hammer home that love story so hard that you miss out on some pretty stuff that could be considered larger. Obi-Wan goes to a planet to figure out where this assassin comes from and discovers that a Jedi 10 years ago ordered an army. He ordered one, like from a mail-order catalog. And no one knew about it, and there's just this army sitting here And the reveal of that is underplayed so much that it doesn't feel important. Is that what you got from the way they played it? Yeah, yeah. um, Yeah, they very much underplayed that whole thing. Um, Because you couldn't even tell it was a love story. I mean, you can kind of grasp that was a love story, but it wasn't a love story in the, the sense of building up that kind of romance in the storyline, you know, because again, you kind of need, even like a psycho thriller movie, you kind of need build up of, you know, why are they falling in love? You know, they fall in love, um, conflict within a said relationship or potential relationship and, you know, resolve it by, um, he's saving a day or he rescues her or they both see faults within themselves and that's how they come together. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's the kind of Yeah, you know what? That's a good point. And then you have that, like I'm saying though, that army stuff is so underplayed that this really important dramatic moment of there is an army that's just been built that no one really controls. Yeah, we're just going to kind of move past that and get to the next Hayden Christensen Natalie Portman scene. And me that go, that's just, like you keep saying, that's just bad writing. Because that should be the most important moment in the prequel trilogy, other than when Anakin falls. It should be the most, like, there is an army out there. That's where this whole story is going to come from, from the discovery of this army. And by the time Obi-Wan goes to leave Kamino, and he has that moderately cool fight with Jango Fett, you're, 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 you're so bored by that point that you don't care. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, yeah. There's there's a lot going on in this movie that is... There, there are scenes that are too long, scenes that are too short. There is... Okay, so I had a big conversation with my roommate. You know when he goes to Tatooine and he goes and he finds his mom tied to the rape cross thing? Mm-hmm. Okay. He, she dies. He goes out of the tent. He lights his lightsaber. He kills two Tusken Raiders. He goes to kill a third, and the camera cuts. This is the story of how 
you are creating the greatest villain possibly in the history of pop American pop culture. You need to show him massacring that village. All of them. You can't cut early. You can't say he did it later. We need to see him massacre. My roommate said the best way to have done it would have been to have him massacre all of the warriors. And then when you see like a woman and child, that's when you cut as he swings the lightsaber. Right, which makes that scene much more important, much more believable. It's like a what the what the fuck moment. Like I can't believe he's killing children, but they don't do that. They just kind of go, oh yeah, and then he tells her later, I killed everybody. Which at which point she should go, well, I don't want to date you. You're a murderer. But no, she's like, oh well, it's understandable because your mother died. No. But I think that, that that speaks more to the kind of films that George Lucas has always done and not, you know, really expanded his own um, directorial experience. You know, had you had someone who did more psycho thrillers, someone who did like um, serial killer movies or something of that nature. Someone who understands character. Right, um, I think they would have made that direction better than the way George Lucas is. Because I mean, I mean, George Lucas and let's let's keep in mind Steven Steven Spielberg was in this movie too. His, no, he's not. His no, he's not. Too. You know, you think so? Because I don't see any of it. I know that he had nothing to do with. The, as far as I know, he had nothing to do with the prequel trilogies. Well, he was one of the producers. Was he? I th- I believe so. He was. I don't think so. I'm double checking that now. But I'm pretty sure that Spielberg had nothing to do. I mean, I know that there was rumors for a while that Lucas was trying to get him to do episodes two and three, and Spielberg said no. Like, I know that, that that's a famous story. But I, I don't... I, I know that my understanding that Lucas and Spielberg collaborate on some things, especially on characters. Right, well... It, it, they, have a, they have a relationship and everything. Um, yeah, he's even not, though Spielberg he, he's, didn't write anything or he didn't direct anything, um, you there are some fingerprints. I mean, albeit it's not all there, but I still think there's some Steven Spielberg advice that George. See, I I would argue that that's more Episode One, like the way that the kids' storyline is handled, feels more like a Spielberg. Than this, this just feels more like uh, you know. What this movie feels like this movie feels like Michael Bay makes a Star Wars movie. A forced love, really? yes, a forced love story, a mystery that's not really a, that that isn't treated properly. And what the hell? Who cares? We'll just blow it all up at the end anyway for an hour with nothing but special effects. Like that's what it felt like more to me. Like a Michael Bay does Star Wars movie. So I mean, I know we're gonna be. I know I'm jumping ahead a little. No, bit, feel free. This is what. I'm excited for with Force Awakens because J.J. Abrams is at the helm. And I think J.J. Abrams is going to deliver that more than what George Lucas has done for Episode 1 and 2. Yes, I, I agree. I think that the, the handling of story and character under J.J. Abrams, he's proven that he can do very well. Uh, even Even in the moments where he's made mistakes, they at least feel organic. I mean, I, I looked at Into Darkness as probably J.J. Agram's weakest uh, performance as a director, and even that has moments that work, whereas there is nothing in Episode 2 to me that works. There's 
I mean, episode one at least has Liam Neeson, who I buy as a Jedi, and I'm interested in his development. Whereas in this movie, again, when Hayden Christensen speaks, I can't look at the screen. He's such a bad actor in this movie. And the way that this movie develops makes very little sense. The story is very confusing, and it doesn't need to be. Like, the fact that Christopher Lee is is playing this character that used to be a Jedi, but it's never really explicitly said that he's actually a, a Sith. He tries to sell the fact that he's not, even though the... Again, with that whole thing of, we know you're a bad guy. The entire audience, why are you playing it like we don't know? And it's this this just poorly written story, man. I mean, it to the point where, when you get to the end of that movie, and they have that lightsaber fight with it's before Yoda shows up... I'm not interested. I don't. I don't. I don't care enough about Anakin to care when he gets his arm cut off. I don't care. I almost cheer when it happens. And trying to remember watching this movie for the first time because it is unfair sometimes to go back and watch a movie that you decided you hated ten years ago, and, and go back and remind yourself of why you hated it. I sent the text message to my roommate AJ. You'll love this. Uh, yesterday to make sure that we were all going to be there at the right time. So I said, "Long." I sent him the quote from Dante, dude, which was, long and hard is the road out of darkness that leads up to light. Watching episode two tonight at 7.15. Because this movie, even more than episode, episode one to me at least feels like Star Wars. This doesn't feel like Star Wars to me. Does it to you? No. I mean, both episodes did not feel like Star Wars because it never... Again, it goes back to – I think this is the hardest thing I've had with these prequels is you're going back to a storyline where you said, okay, I gave you um, New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, and you're under the – notion that these are the Star Wars films, you know? And they're like, oh, no, there's a story before that, and now you have to go back and retell that in order to understand these these three original movies um, was just horrible. I mean, it was a horrible idea. I mean, if you're going to do a prequel, um, do the prequel, then the movies, and then something new. Um I've always been hesitant when you're doing a movie like Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, in order to talk about Lord of the Rings, you have to talk about The Hobbit, you know. And I was very concerned that we're going to do The Hobbit. I'm like, okay, I'm coming into this cautionly because I've seen a lot of horrible prequel movies that lead up into um, a great film that w- was done. Well, and it's interesting you say that because it's a bad idea. Because I, I kind of agree that the, the idea was hurt from the beginning because when you go into a story, knowing what the ending is going to be, there's already, like at no point do we know, do you feel risk for Obi-Wan or Anakin, your two main characters, or Yoda, because you know that those three characters are in the next three films. Right, so right. instantly you can't put them at risk at any point in a way that anybody believes because nobody cares because we know that they make it to at least a certain point. the The other issue with doing the the prequels like this, and this is I think the most important thing of what makes this a bad idea. Nobody ever said, "Hey, those three movies are great, but I really want to know what happened before." You know what I mean? Like no one ever said that. 
those movies stand on their own. And because they, it's, it's George Lucas wanted to make films. Let's just call it what it is. Yeah, he wanted to do it, so we're going to do it this way. You know, I mean, call it, oh, he needed a paycheck, so he did these three episodes. That's why. Or Which actually, whatever the reason is. I mean... I think it's even worse than that, because let's face it, it, George Lucas didn't need the money. So he did this. This is his artistic vision. I would actually feel better if it would have been like George had gone broke... He was financially hurting. He needed to make these movies, you know, for a living. I actually can get behind that a little bit more. But for what it is now, like, you were already worth all the money in the world. Make these movies good. And the fact that you think that these are good tells us that you, at some point in your ascent to wealth, lost touch of what makes a good movie. But I mean, well, I mean this new movie, Force Awakens is exactly what the first episode was. In that, from a marketing perspective, it's been years since the last Star Wars film. And now George Lucas and George and Lucasfilm said, we're going to do Star Wars, the prequel stuff. And people got excited, like we said in our last um, podcast episode and everything. And people were excited. People like myself were sleeping in tents outside of movie theaters waiting for this because this is great we are seeing star wars again and this is the crap you give us you know um with force, force awakens there's a now we're into 21st century um marketing practices you know we're seeing this on social media we're seeing it on commercials we're seeing everything that people can do with star wars you know i'm seeing car commercials out my way who are using Star Wars as a way to draw in people for their products, you know? Which is, um, which is the brilliance of Disney in this marketing campaign because they've spent next to nothing on marketing because what they've done is they're just charging... They are literally getting paid by other people to market their movie for them. Well, it is, but I also kind of look at it as like music in that, you know, you, you do not have to bill... The Rolling Stones. All you have to say is Rolling Stones are on tour, and it sells itself. You know what I'm saying? The, the, All you have to do is saying Star Wars is out. We're doing Force Awakens, and it sells itself. And then you add into the fact immediately, and Han and Chewie are in it, and and instantly everybody goes, "Oh, well, I need to see that because I love Han and Chewie." Right. And getting Harrison Ford to be on board. Helps you be like, all right, well, it, it does go a long way to go, and all right, these will be better. These are instantly better than the prequels because we know that there's a good actor in it, and there's somebody that we love and care about in this movie. Well, and, yeah, I mean, once you have Harrison Ford being Han Solo, you have Chewie, you know, they added Carrie Fisher, you have um, Mark Hamill in there as well. Um, I mean, it's, it's just yeah, speaks it, to the kind of thing that that inf almost infamous photo that was leaked with J.J. Abrams and everyone else in doing the, the table read. Yeah, it's like that alone. It's like okay, J.J. Abrams is on a good foot right now. And going back to episode two, you like okay. So all of the lead up to episode one, all of the hype to episode one, 
And even leaving the theater, I remember that up until episode two, people were trying to say, okay, well, you needed to tell that story. It wasn't the greatest story, but now we're going to get something really good because he's going to be older and Anakin's going to start turning to the darks. You know, I, you and I have talked on other shows that we've done. I'm a wrestling fan, so I consider it a heel turn, right? Like at some point, Anakin has to turn heel. He's literally a baby face in episode one. And I mean literally like he's a baby. So he's literally a baby face in episode one. By the time episode two comes around, you're supposed to get the idea that he's damaged in some way that will eventually allow him to become a bad guy. But I don't get damaged from his portrayal. And I don't get damaged from the lines that he reads. I get whiny and spoiled. I don't get anger and when he tries to convey anger it comes off as despair which is a different emotion and his facial reactions to everything in this movie seem wooden and wrong to what is happening in front of him and it's a problem going forward because by the time this movie ends you should have it in your head all right this guy's a hero but there's something wrong with him. And that's not the vibe you get by the end of this movie. The vibe you get is he's not a pleasant person to be around and she has horrible taste in men. Right. You know, and, and, and not only that, but they have like, these love scenes in this movie. Like, okay, AJ, the scene where they're frolicking through the grass like Little House on the Prairie. You yeah, know, yeah. I, mean, I mean, my God. And... You're like this is these are children. These are children playing. She is this is the thing that really drove me nuts about this movie more than anything else. She's a fucking senator, AJ. Mm-hmm. She's a senator. You'd like to believe to reach the point of senator in the galactic senate that you're a little bit more emotionally mature than falling in love with a dude because he happens to blink his eyes at you and feed you a pear. Right. The, the, the whole thing the entire time just it just it, it ends up hurting your brain trying to think of all this stuff. And I want to get uh, to the overuse of CGI and, and the forcing of that last battle scene in this movie. Which there is a couple scenes in that battle that are actually really cool. The When the clones are fighting the droids and it's all dusty and mm-hmm. you see like that cloud of dust and the lasers are flying through it. Like, you want to talk about a Spielberg moment? That felt like a Spielberg moment. You yeah. Know, just like the complete confusion of war, which was really cool. But then it cuts, and it's, she falls off the, first of all, she falls off of a ship, which you're like, okay, so that's weird. And then Anakin freaks out, oh, we've got to go back and save her. We've got to save her. No, we must do what we said, Anakin. Okay, fine, whatever. And then... You get to this this giant battle that's taking place. By the way, we, we need to spend a couple minutes. Did you notice the bad Yoda dialogue? Was it bad Yoda dialogue or just trying to come off as, you know, I don't know. I, Around the defenders, a perimeter create. That's just bad. That's not Yoda talking. That's just somebody trying to write the way they think Yoda talks. Well, again, that's what goes back to what I said earlier. I mean, do you write a script and, you know, you get the person doing a character to drive the script? Or do you give the actor the script and you're hoping that the actor 
makes the character. And so, I think that's a good example of what I was referencing. Because no, you're absolutely right. That's a great example of that, where somebody wrote that line and counted on the actor being able to deliver it correctly, and then... But the line is so poorly written that I don't think there's an actor that I don't think Frank Oz, I don't think it's on Frank Oz the way that that line is delivered. I think that line is poorly written. And it, right, it, and again, let's point that out. It's Frank Oz, and you would think Frank Oz, out of everyone, um, would know how to drive a character, especially Yoda, his most famous where, character. Where Frank Oz is, you know. Right, and and he's used to doing voiceover, so and he's used to doing that kind of stuff, and it's still his voice, and you, you just have these things where it's like to the command, uh, or is it f- to the front uh, command center? Take me now, and you go, okay, that's like a six-year-old trying to talk like Yoda, the way that that's written. That's not that's not as good as looking found someone you have, hmm? like. I always got the idea that Yoda doesn't talk like that all the time unless he's kind of messing with people. Right. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't really talk like that. He does that as part of, like, his Zen thing. But in a moment of crisis, you would imagine that the Jedi Master would know, create a perimeter. Like, he doesn't have to say it that way. And they're forcing it, and it gets to the, and it gets, I guess, you know what, the more we keep talking about this, AJ, I think my roommate had it right. There is so much stuff that is just forced into these movies that you're like, okay, no, okay, no, okay, no, okay, no, no, no. I don't buy any of this crap. Why is this still on? Why is this movie two and a half hours long when it could have been 90 minutes? You know, like all of that kind of crap. And and it just, it gets to the point where you go, I, I, I can't, like I got done with that movie and I was angry. I was angry at the end of that movie, how, how bad it was. So... Again, one more more moment with Yoda. Is it me or do they actually counter what Yoda's philosophy is? In other words, if we we remember Yoda in that swamp with Luke Skywalker, to which his philosophy was, you know, it's better not to fight with muscle than it is to fight with what the force is and everything. And Size yet, matters and not. You see him in a lightsaber battle off. You know, that's a really good point, AJ. That's a really good point because you would think by the philosophy that he espouses in Empire, which, okay, here's what I'll give you. If, if you wanted to paint the picture that by Empire Strikes Back, Yoda has learned some sort of lesson from the prequel, you know what I mean? That's that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about because I mean I mean even thinking like in even like with a- activism there's a lot of us who speak nonviolence and you know if if anything Yoda is kind of like that you know but yet we see him in a lightsaber match you know it's like okay so is Yoda this is a, a, a snapshot of Yoda's time. And when we see him with Luke Skywalker, he is actually espousing his experience and, you know, Luke Skywalker should learn from that. Or are you really going against what Yoda's really about, that he is about taking force through the lightsaber and not really using his wisdom and nonviolent actions in order to fight the evil of the Empire? 
which it, it, the way you're I, I actually that's a again that's a really great question because the the sad answer to this is and it goes back to bad writing is I just really want to see Yoda in a lightsaber fight. Everyone right. wants to see Yoda in a <laughs> lightsaber know? fight, so we have to do it. And you're like, and that's but it my doesn't. Favorite scene of all episode two, right? And in your head, you go, but it doesn't make sense for this character. Like, yes, it's really cool to watch him fight like a little psychotic softball with a lightsaber. And that's all he does is barrel rolls. Yeah, and he's like flipping around and doing stuff. And you're like, okay, but but this is the great pacifist. They'd be like having a movie about Martin Luther King that ends with him going on a shooting rampage against all the racists. Well, yeah, or you can use the example like Gandhi. I mean, Gandhi before, I mean, used violent actions in South Africa before he became this, you know, poster child of nonviolent actions, you know. But if that's um, the way, but here's the thing. If that's the tact you're going to take, if that's the route you're going to take, that by the time Empire and Jedi roll around, that he's learned his lessons from the Clone Wars, then there needs to be scenes that, that he acknowledges that violence is not always the answer. You know what I mean? Right. And, or, and, you know, Yoda actually does believe in that, and, and only in this instance, and to whatever Yoda's own principles are that he will only use force when it's necessary. Right, which isn't explained. Like, there's nothing in the scene that's like, I would never raise a lightsaber to anybody, but you are so evil, I have no choice. You but know, this is I- the problem with being you looking at the original trilogy and then going back to the prequel. This is what's so bad is. You know, we already have these preconceived notions of who these characters are, and now we're in the prequels. I'm like, well, this doesn't make sense. That's illogical. I mean... Well, there's no better example of that in in any of these movies. There is no better example, AJ, to me, of that than the fact that in Episode 2, for no reason, and nothing is gained from it, than the fact that they give R2-D2 rockets on his legs. Because... Which is an improvement. (laughs) What? That's an improvement for R2-D2. Right. But here's the thing with that. You you go, okay, that's fine, but there are plenty of scenes in the other five movies where that would come in kind of handy. And he doesn't right. use them. And in my head I go, you can't... You've established what this character is. And R2-D2 is a character. You've established what his limitations are. There are rules for characters. You can't all of a sudden, because you want a five-minute scene where R2-D2 is flying around, just do that. Like, you can't just change the, the concept of the character go, oh, yeah, R2-D2 has rockets. You go, okay, but I've watched four movies with this character, and he never had rockets before. And now in this movie that takes place, you know, 30 years before the movies that I love and a, like eight years after the movie I just saw, now he has rockets in his legs that he'll never use again. That makes no sense. That's that's a Based on what you're saying about, like, taking the characters and kind of changing them for the prequels, that's like the most glaring example more than anything else to me because it's it's purposeless. Nothing is gained in that scene from him having rockets on his legs. Nothing. Except the fact that they wanted to do it. Again, I just want to see, I want to see R2-D2 fly. I, 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 I want to see him fly, so we're going to have him fly. Okay, George, but he doesn't fly in the other movies. You've got to have him fly in other scenes. No, I just want to see him fly in this scene. It's, it's missing something, so we're going to have him... You, you understand what I'm saying? Again, I mean, above all, you don't say no to George Lucas. 
That's that's uh, you know what? That's a good point, and that's the danger. That's the old. That's my overall message in episode one, two, and some of in three. Part, in, in some of three is you just don't say no to George Lucas because when you think Star Wars, you think George Lucas. So anything George Lucas says has to be right because he's the originator of the last, the the original trilogy. It's, Would you say no to Led Zeppelin if they came out with a pop song? No, because it's Led Zeppelin. Yeah, but then you can go with the Harrison Ford argument of uh, you can write this shit, but I don't have to fucking say it. <laughs> and with the Led Zeppelin argument, you can go, I listen, you can make this music, but I don't got to fucking listen to it. Right. <laughs> you know, and and, and that's kind of what, but I see what you're saying. Like, there, there comes a point where if you're on set and George Lucas is directing you in a Star Wars, I guess it'd be similar to being like an Indiana Jones set and Spielberg is saying, and then the movie's going to end and they're going to be aliens. And then he's going to talk to the aliens with his mind. And people go, uh, Steve, <laughs> point of order, uh, don't think that that's really a great idea. You're fired. Well, okay, but that's still a bad idea. You know, it's like, I, I see what you're saying. Like, that, that's a fair argument that you can't say no to the guy, but then you wonder, because then you start getting into, like, the Kanye thing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a musical genius. I am a lyricist. I am not a gay fish. I don't know if you've seen that South Park. No. There's a South Park where the entire uh, concept of the episode is Jimmy, the kid, the the kid with the uh, crutches, yeah. writes a joke, and the joke is, AJ, do you like fish sticks? Yeah. What are you, a gay fish? <sighs> right. It's a stupid joke, but the whole concept of the episode is that Kanye cannot get the joke, so he goes, I like fish sticks. I am not gay. Why am I a gay fish? Because you like fish sticks. I am not a gay, like that whole kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And with this movie, I feel like there's a lot of, just somebody going to George Lucas and saying, you, 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 can't, you can't have R2-D2 fly. Why? I'm a, I am a genius. I, I, I am the creator of all of this. If I say R2-D2 flies, R2-D2 flies. All right, it's your property. You can do it. But I'm telling you as a fan that I don't want to see R2-D2. You know what I mean? Like, He's so wrapped up in his own world that he can't understand that people have... You know what? I, I, I was talking to my roommate about this. The, the complaints that we have about episodes one and two are very similar to the complaints that we have about the wrestling in today's world. If you think about it. You're, yeah, not, yeah. you're not establishing your characters correctly. Your story doesn't make sense. There are logic holes that you can drive a bus through in your storylines, but we're just supposed to accept it because you say just accept it. You know what? You're absolutely right. And more importantly, and we talked about this before we're doing this whole series of um, Star Wars. Um, the one wrestler that you and I were talking about, um, Bray. Bray Wyatt. Perfect example. I think he sums up episode one and two that you have a character, you know, but what are you doing with them? And it's a poorly written character. And 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 what and the character's actions don't make sense to the baseline of the character you've created. Like exactly. his, his I mean, actions he, don't follow great. what he's supposed to be doing. Right. I mean, it's great that we have this fringe character and he's supposed to be this cult of personality and you know he may be um uh, undertaker 2.0 in the 21st century but um what are you doing 
Yeah, you know, and and, and you you can apply that same sort of thinking to Anakin Skywalker, where you go, you have this character who eventually becomes the world's biggest badass, and I I don't know, have you ever seen the interview Kevin Smith did about the prequels, where somebody asks him what he thinks of it, and he says, listen, what his argument is because he's a fan of everything. His argument is that of course Darth Vader would start out as a whiny emo kid, and I would argue no. Darth Vader should start off as the purest of the pure. He should be the most talented, well-behaved, good Jedi. So that when he turns heel, it fits the character that he becomes as big of a bad guy as he was a good guy. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. And that's where he should start from. He should start from, he should be in the beginning of episode two, the best Jedi student of all. He should be, you know who he should be? He should be Captain Kirk. If you think yeah, about it. Yeah. A little arrogant, but the best of the best. And then when he is pushed and he is pushed and he is pushed, eventually his hatred for his enemy who has hurt him drives him over the edge. And that's not the storyline that we're going to be given in episode three, looking ahead, or that we're giving an ep- given in episode two. He's just a whiny little bitch, and then eventually his whininess turns to anger because he's afraid all the time. Because fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. The problem with that is is that I don't believe Hayden Christensen is capable of acting out hatred. No. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've never been a fan of Hayden Christensen. Um, and I feel bad piling on the guy. I saw him once on the Goosebump TV show. Right, and are you thinking, no, it wasn't Goosebumps, it was Are You Afraid of the Dark? I thought it was Goosebumps because uh, there was the one he did like it was like a, a, a ventriloquist doll episode. That oh, he, he was, was in the Night of the Dummy. Yeah, I read all those books when I was a kid. Let me see here. Da, 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 da. Yeah, you're right. Goosebumps. Yeah, Night of the Living Dummy three. He wasn't even in the first or second one. <laughs> and then he was also in Are You Afraid of the Dark? Uh, let's see. Famous Jet Jetson, Shattered Glass, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sift. And then Jumper, Awake, for, I mean, and then he's basically been in like four, move, five movies since then. You he was know? in Shattered Glass? He, yes, he played Stephen Glass. The true story of a young journalist who fell from grace when his found he had fabricated over half of his articles. Well, yeah, that's my favorite film. I didn't realize that was him. Yeah, he just plays the main character. So you do like him in something. Rosario I, don't like da- I, don't, I don't like him. Rosario. Have you seen Shattered Glass? No. Should I it's, watch it? You should. I mean, it, it tells a story about, um, so Stephen Glass used to write for the New Republic magazine and everything, but yeah. essentially plagiarizes essentially almost everything he has written. Hmm. And um, it's not the most sexiest indie film, but it tells like that it's a good story. Like it's like right down the middle of what the story should be and everything. Um, and you know, Hayden Christensen, which I'm now realizing who it is now, um, is a very flat character and, and rightfully so because Stephen Glass himself was not the most, um, animated person in real life. It's, uh, I, I mean, I'll definitely watch it. It sounds like it's a good watch, at least. Which, considering the last two movies I've seen this week, it would be an improvement. Uh, we're coming up on the end of this thing, AJ. Any final thoughts on Star Wars Episode Two: The Attack of the 
Hayden dipshit. Poorly written film. Um, just because George Lucas is doing it doesn't mean he's right all the time. And more importantly, um, if you want a good movie on how not to act with green and blue screen, this is the movie you need to watch. The, uh, the other thing I would say, if, if you're going to go into examples of what not to do or what to do in a movie like this... Uh, I wanted to get music going for the end of this. If you're going to make a movie about what happened 20 years before a movie that you love, follow the rules that you established in your earlier version. You know what I mean? Like, don't don't disregard everything that we accept as gospel about your movies. That's what I would say. No, that's, yeah. that's a very fair point. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that that basically ends our review of the, my opinion, the worst of the Star Wars movies. AJ, second worst of the Star Wars movies. And uh, long and hard is the road out of darkness that leads up to light, AJ, because now we get to watch episode three, which, while not anywhere near as good as any of the originals, is at least at least feels like Star Wars. Yes. So we have that going for us. Other than that, AJ, say goodbye to the people. People, bye. Nicely done. He went Yoda on it, but good Yoda, not weird child Yoda. This is Nick Sarantos, host and editor-in-chief of Chicago Podcast Network, joined over the interwebs by AJ Signary. Remember, reminder of everybody, December 17th uh, at the Pickwick Theater. We're going to be doing giveaways and all sorts of fun stuff, recording the podcast at 5, movies at 7. Come on out and join us. But most importantly, ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you've listened to these two shows after watching those prequel movies, you have my greatest sympathy And, uh, again, at least we're out of the darkness. This has been the Chicago Podcast Network's Out Front with AJ and Nick. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We will see you guys on the 17th. Until then, can't wait to get up our Episode 3 and then finally get into the good Star Wars movies. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. We out! This has been a production of the Chicago Podcast Network. Theme music provided by the Free Music Archive. Morning Blue by Josh Woodward. That's Josh Woodward on the Free Music Archive. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Gmail. 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it.